Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Deacon Tim O'Donnell, uh, Program Director of the Harvard Catholic Forum. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the inaugural lecture of our series devoted to faith and science. Tonight's presentation is, in fact, the first public lecture offered by the Harvard Catholic Forum, which is a project of the Harvard Catholic Center, St. Paul Parish in Harvard Square, and the St. Paul Choir School. Our mission is to share the riches of Catholic thought and culture with the academic, professional, and artistic worlds of Cambridge, Boston, and beyond. In addition to our lectures, we offer non-credit courses, and in the future, we'll be offering other programs drawing on the breadth and depth of the Catholic tradition. We are honored to have as our co-presenter for this series on faith and science, the Lumen Christi Institute, which since 1997 has been enriching the intellectual and cultural life of the University of Chicago and beyond with the insights of Catholic thought. We are also pleased to have as co-sponsors the Society of Catholic Scientists, and the Science and Religion Initiative of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. After tonight's program, you will receive a questionnaire, and it would be a great help to us and to our friends at Lumen Christi if you would give us your feedback. I will now turn the program over to Peter Tierney, himself a geologist, and the Science and Religion Program Coordinator at Lumen Christi, who will introduce tonight's speaker and moderate the program. Peter, will you unmute and turn your video on? Thank you, Deacon Tim. Now for over 2000 years, uh, theologians and naturalists of all kinds have looked to uh, beauty and creation to point towards uh, a, a creator. And there's really no better person to talk about this than an experimental physicist, a, a, a cosmologist like, like Dr. Barr. Uh, but before I introduce him, uh, there's some ground rules for all of you joining us on Zoom. Uh, Dr. Barr will speak for about a half hour, but afterwards there'll be a Q&A session. And if at any time during this presentation, you have a question, you can ask that question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, now, Dr. Barr, Stephen Barr is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Delaware and director of its Bartol Research Institute. He received his PhD from Princeton University and has held research positions at the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Washington and Brookhaven National Laboratory. Dr. Barr is a theoretical particle physicist whose research centers on the cosmology of the early universe and what are known as grand unified theories. And he's written over 150 research papers as well as the article on grand unification for the Encyclopedia of Physics. He has lectured widely on the relation of science and religion and is the author of several books, including the ever popular Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. And Dr. Barr is also the founding and current president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Now he will be presenting today on fearful symmetry, cosmic order and a divine creator. Dr. Barr, can you please turn on your video and microphone? Thank you, Peter. Thank you for uh, <clears throat> introducing, giving me such a nice introduction. I'm very honored to um, be giving the first talk for the uh, Harvard Catholic Forum. I thank uh, Deacon Tim O'Donnell 
and the Harvard Catholic Forum for inviting me and the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, so I'm gonna turn on my uh, PowerPoint slides and begin my talk. Now, from ancient times, Jews and Christians have argued that the existence of God can be known from his works. That is creation itself points to its creator. This is clearly stated in scripture as in the beginning of Psalm 19, which says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. The Old Testament book of wisdom, whoops, um, hold on a second. The Old Testament book of wisdom says that from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. And this is echoed in, by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, where he says, ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. The same theme was taken up by early Christian writers, such as St. Irenaeus in the second century, who wrote, creation itself reveals him who created it, and the work made is suggestive of him that made it, and the world manifests him that arranged it. What is it about the created world that reveals God? Most fundamentally, it's the fact that the universe exists at all. There is a universe, but there did not have to be by any a priori necessity. So the, so the very existence of the universe must have a cause, a cause of being or causa ascendi. This is the most fundamental fact about the, about the world that points to its creator, but there's another very fundamental fact about the world that also calls for explanation. And that is the fact that the world is orderly. To quote St. Irenaeus again, there exists but one God. He is the father, God, the creator, the author, the giver of order. This argument that the orderliness of the cosmos points to God, who is the giver of order, is repeated over and over by the theologians and writers of the early church to show how prominent this argument is in Catholic tradition. I'm going to quote from a number of these early writers, these early Christian uh, authors. In fact, I'm going to give you eight short quotes. Minucius Felix around 200 AD said, when you see providence order and law in the heavens and on earth, Believe that there is a Lord and author of the universe more beautiful than the stars themselves in the various parts of the whole world. The great theologian Origen, writing around 250 AD, said, when we, are, when we are convinced by what we see in the excellent orderliness of the world, then we worship its maker as the one author of one effect, which, since it is entirely in harmony with itself, cannot therefore have been the work of many makers. Lactantius, around 300 AD, said, there is no one so uncivilized nor of such barbarous manners 
that he does not, when he raises his eyes to heaven, understand something from the very magnitude of things, their motion, arrangement, constancy, beauty and proportion, and that this could not possibly be if it were not established in wonderful order, having been fashioned on some greater design. Saint Athanasius in the early fourth century wrote that creation, as if in written characters and by means of its order and harmony, declares in a loud voice its own master and creator. He went on to say in the same work, God by his own word gave to creation such order as is found therein, so that though he is by nature invisible, men might be able to know him through his works. St. Gregory of Nazianzus in the late fourth century wrote, let us even suppose that the existence of the world is spontaneous. To what will you ascribe its order? St. Gregory of Nyssa around the same time said all creation and above all, as the scripture says, the orderly arrangement of the heavens demonstrates the wisdom of the creator through the skill displayed in his works. And the last passage I'll quote is from St. Cyril of Alexandria in the mid fifth century, who said from the origination of the world, that is from its existence and from its order and beauty, we can recognize that the wisdom and power of him who created it and brought it into existence far surpasses every created mind. So this argument is an example that we see in these early Christian writers is an example of what philosophers call the argument from design for the existence of God. Unfortunately, in recent years, the word design has been taken over to a large extent by something called the intelligent design movement or ID movement, which started in the late 1990s. This movement uses a, a particular kind of design argument uh, to, to attack Darwinian evolution. Now, I'm not going to talk about evolution in this talk, um, except to say that the Catholic Church, the magisterium of the Catholic Church has never condemned evolution and does not oppose it. <clears throat> I do, however, want to point out three ways in which the ID movement argument, the ID movement's kind of design argument, differ from the more ancient argument that we see in these early Christian authors. So first of all, the ID movement looks for evidence of, of, of a design, of design or of, uh, well, they don't say God, but evidence of design only in phenomena that they think have no natural explanation that go beyond the powers and capacity, capacities of nature. By contrast, the more ancient argument is based on the orderliness of nature itself. Both Holy Scripture and Catholic tradition generally cite perfectly natural phenomena as evidence of a creator. Because nature itself and its lawful order are God's handiwork. Second, the ID movement focuses exclusively on biological phenomena and in particular on the structure of living things or parts of living things. One sees, however, that the ancient argument is based on the order of the whole cosmos, both living things and non-living things, both the earth and the heavens, all creation points to its creator. Rather than the traditional emphasis being on biology, in fact, one finds that the favorite examples of the ancient Christian writers and also in scripture 
are examples are the heavens, the order seen in the heavens. So Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Minucius Felix said, extol the providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth. Lactantius refers to what we see when we raise our eyes to heaven. And St. Athanasius speaks of the orderly arrangement of the heavens and so forth. But again, but again, it is all parts of creation that are seen as pointing to their creator. And third, the ID movement focuses entirely on the complexity of certain things as evidence of design. Whereas the, the complexity in the biological world Whereas the central theme of the ancient Christian writings was the order, beauty, harmony, and lawfulness of the world. So to avoid being hung up on the word design with, with all the baggage that it has unfortunately acquired in recent times, let's call the more ancient argument, the argument from order or the argument from cosmic order. How has the or argument from cosmic order fared in light or held up in the light of modern science. I'm going to argue that it is held up very well indeed. And in fact, modern science cannot undercut the argument from order, cosmic order for a simple reason. Modern science and all scientific explanations are based on the assumption that nature is orderly and lawful. And in fact, the discoveries of modern science by showing that the order of nature is much more profound and impressive than had ever been realized before have actually strengthened this traditional argument for the existence of God. The more we discover, the stronger this argument becomes. Now, modern atheists and materialists would disagree with this, of course. Their, their, point, their point is that if you look at the orderly shapes and arrangements of, of things seen in the natural world, one finds that they do not come from someone arranging them or shaping them by hand, so to speak, as is the case with human artifacts. Rather, they arise spontaneously through blind and impersonal natural forces and mechanisms. No organizing intelligence or giver of order is needed. For example, if we see a human artifact that has a spherical shape, such as a ball, we know that someone chose to give it that shape. But stars and planets are spherical because their gravitational self-attraction squeezes them into spheres. If we see soldiers arranged on a parade ground, or if we see in a regular pattern or array, or if we see chairs in an auditorium arranged in a regular pattern or array, we know that that's the result of human choice. But when liquids freeze, their molecules, which had been moving around randomly in the liquid, spontaneously arrange themselves into the regular arrays that we call crystals. And so here's a picture of, of the, crystal, the crystal of uh, a diagram, the crystal of ice 
And here we see some actual photographs of ice crystals. And here are some more beautiful crystals. And this self-arranging of the molecules into these arrays happens because of chemical forces. No one is individually placing the molecules in these, in these patterns. Or consider the very orderly structure of the solar system. The orbits of the planets all go around more or less in the same plane. This of course is an artist's conception of the solar system. They all go around in the same plane, more or less. They all go around the sun in the same direction. They all follow orbits that are ellipses that are quite close to being circles. Now, these geometrical patterns were not imposed by hand. We know that this orderly structure arose by natural mechanisms. The solar system began as a cloud, a swirling cloud of gas and dust. And over time, its self-gravitation caused it to condense and form this orderly structure. And it, we actually understand very well how these orderly structures emerge uh, from these uh, protostellar or these uh, clouds of, of, of gas. Now, this seems to be, in fact, the, the story of the whole universe. The whole universe in its early stages was filled with a uniform, nearly featureless uh, gas of elementary particles. And this gas grew more lumpy over time as gravity uh, uh, enhanced the slight density perturbations that were there, uh, the slight density fluctuations. These lumps eventually condensed to form galaxies and stars and planets. Somewhere on the surface of the earth, there was a, a, a pool of, of, of chemicals, uh, a soup of chemi simple chemicals, and these chemicals combined to form molecules, and then larger molecules, and eventually self-replicating molecules. At some point, a self-replicating cell appeared, and then multicellular organisms in due course, and, and eventually highly complex organisms that had nervous systems and brains and so forth. So what we see is in cosmic history, we see form coming from formlessness, order emerging spontaneously from chaos. And presiding over this whole drama, the atheist tells us, is not some intelligence, but blind physical forces and mathematical necessity. So that is, that's the atheist's moral of cosmic history. But in fact, this story, though correct as far as it goes, is incomplete. And the lessons the atheist wishes to draw from it are based on a superficial view of science. It's a view that leaves out a major part of what modern science has taught us about nature, maybe the most important part. What it leaves out is this. When examined carefully, scientific accounts and explanations of natural processes are never really about order emerging spontaneously from mere chaos or form from mere formlessness. On the contrary, these accounts and explanations are always about the unfolding of an order that was already present in the nature of things, although often 
in a hidden way. Now, in physics, when we see situations that appear to be entirely amorphous and chaotic, automatically or spontaneously uh, arranging themselves into intricate orderly patterns, we find that in every case that what appeared to be entirely amorphous or chaotic actually had a great deal of order already built into it. I'm going to illustrate this with a simple but very instructive example. And what we're going to learn from this example is, that, is, is, is the following important principle. Order has to be built in for order to come out. So here's the example. Let's imagine you have a cardboard box and in the box, rolling around in the box are a lot of ball bearings. Now they're rolling around aimlessly, randomly, chaotically in the bottom of the box. But if you tilt the box, all the ball bearings will roll down, fall down into the corner. And if you jiggle the box so that they, they settle as low as they can in the box, in the corner, you will find that a certain pattern emerges. And I've done this, and this actually is what you see. Now, this pattern is called by mathematicians the hexagonal closest packing pattern. It is the tightest way to pack spheres together. You see this pattern in many places. For example, you see it often in oranges arranged on a fruit stand, or in the lower right, you see the eggs of an insect on the leaf of a plant that they have been laid in that pattern by the insect. Now, let's go back to the ball bearings though. Why do the ball bearings do this when you tilt the box? Why do they go from being chaotic, rolling around, milling around aimlessly to forming this nice orderly pattern? Well, they do it for two reasons. First, because when you tilt the box, the force of gravity force squeezes them down into the corner of the box. And second, the tightest way to squeeze a set of spheres is this hexagonal closest packing pattern. So it seems that the, this, this sort of bears out the, the view that I gave before, that I mentioned before, that we have blind physical forces, gravity, and mathematical necessity, the, way, the tightest way to pack spheres, gave rise to this order of, these, of this pattern spontaneously. But let's think about it a little harder. Let's think a little harder about this example. Suppose instead of uh, a set of ball bearings in the box, suppose I hired a huge crane to come to my house and lift up, tilt the living room and shake it so that all the objects in the living room slid down into a corner. What would I find? Would I find an orderly array? No, I would find a total jumble. And I, I wanna say that the picture I'm about to show you is not my living room. It's a picture I found on the internet, but it makes the point. So this is what, you'd get something like this. You'd get a total mess, a jumble. Now, why is it that in the case of the ball bearings, you get that, and in the case of the living room, you get a mess, a jumble? Well, one reason is that all the object, all the ball bearings have the same size and shape as each other, unlike the objects in the living room. But that's not enough to explain it because I could imagine taking, for example, a lot of spoons 
that all have the same size and shape and putting them in a box and shaking it and tilting it and so forth. And what I would get is that. So it still looks like a jumble. Now, again, so there's something else. And it's not just that the ball bearings have the same size and shape. It's they all have a very particular and special shape. One that is particularly symmetrical, namely a sphere. In fact, a, the sphere is the most symmetrical shape that you have in three dimensions. Now that's important because when you have spoons in, the bo in a box and shake it, the spoons will fall and point every which way or the objects in the living room will fall and point every which way. But this, these spheres, these ball bearings cannot point every which way because no matter what way you turn a sphere, it looks the same. It doesn't matter how they fall. They're gonna look the same because of the symmetry of a sphere. So we see that even before the box was tilted, when the ball bearings were rolling around aimlessly and chaotically, there were already two principles of order present in the situation. One, every ball bearing had the same size and shape. And two, they all had the particularly simple shape of a sphere. Now, that's, those aren't the only principles of order that were present when we had that apparent chaos of the ball bearings rolling around aimlessly. There were also the laws of gravity and mechanics. They played a role because it was gravity that forced the ball bearings to squeeze. The ball bearings were moving in such a way as to minimize their gravitational potential energy. And that comes from the laws of physics and mechanics. And the laws of physics and mechanics are themselves principles of order at a more abstract and deeper level. So we see from this example how what we didn't really have order coming from chaos or form from formlessness, but the form that the order that we see in this, this nice hexagonal array is a consequence of various principles of order that were already present in the shapes of the ball bearings and in the laws of physics. Now, one learns something even more interesting from this example, because in this example, not only did order come as a consequence of a pre-existing order, but the pre-existing order was actually greater in a certain sense than the order that emerged. And we can see this by considering a particular kind of order that's called symmetry. Now to a mathematician or a physicist, symmetry, a symmetry of an object is something that you do to the object, a transformation that you do to the object that leaves it looking the same as it did before. So for example, if I have a perfect square, if I rotate it, it will look different unless I rotate it, for example, by 90 degrees. If I rotate a perfect square by 90 degrees, it comes back to looking as it did before or any multiple of 90 degrees. So if I rotate, so rotating by 90 degrees is called a symmetry of the square. And the square has actually four so-called rotational symmetries, rotating by 90 degrees or 180 degrees or 270 degrees or 360 degrees. So it's a fourfold symmetry. Now look at the uh, pattern of circles here. This is the pattern that we see in the hexagonal closest packing arrangement of the ball bearings. It has a, it has a hexagonal symmetry. So if you focus on the six 
light gray colored circles in the middle. They form a perfect hexagon. And you see that if you rotate this pattern by any multiple of 60 degrees, it will go back to looking as it did before. So there's a six-fold symmetry of rotating by 60 degrees or 120 or 180 or 240 or 300 or 360 degrees. So it has a six-fold rotational symmetry. Now, the order that we saw was already present when the ball bearings were moving around chaotically. It was already present in the shape of the ball bearings is also a kind of symmetry, is also a symmetry. A sphere has also has rotational symmetry, but far more rotational symmetries than a hexagon does because you can rotate a sphere by any angle around any axis and it will look the same. So a sphere has a, in a, in a sense, a doubly infinite set of symmetries, whereas a hexagon has only six rotational symmetries. Moreover, the symmetries of the sphere contain all the symmetries of the hexagon because you can certainly rotate a sphere by 60 degrees or any multiple of it and it will look, look the same. So the symmetry that was already present in the shapes of the ball bearings is greater than that that emerged in the pattern that they formed themselves into. And in fact, um, what physicists would say in this situation is not that the six-fold symmetry that emerged came out of nowhere, didn't emerge from thin air. It actually was kind of distilled from, or it's a remnant of, a consequence of, a larger symmetry that was already there. So physicists would call this an example of spontaneous symmetry breaking. The larger symmetry was a fragment of the larger symmetry that was already there has manifest itself in the arrangement of the ball bearings. So um, what happens in the ball bearing example is very similar to what happens when crystals form. The ball bearings were trying to lower their gravitational potential energy when you tilt the box. And in doing so, they form a particular order, ordered pattern. When you have a, a, a liquid uh, crystallizing, the molecules in the liquid move around randomly. But then when you lower the temperature to the freezing point, what happens is the molecules, as they try to lower something that's called their free energy, arrange themselves into an orderly pattern. So it, it's actually a, very much the same phenomenon. So um, the beautiful symmetries that we see in crystals are actually a consequence of symmetries that already exist at the atomic level. So here's a picture of the simplest atom, a hydrogen atom, showing various uh, states or, or energy levels of a hydrogen atom. The, the red uh, clouds are showing the probability density of the electron in, in the hydrogen atom in these various states. And you can see that one hydrogen atom is actually a highly ordered structure. It has a lot of symmetry to it, as you can also see. And so these symmetries at the level of the atoms are actually what are responsible ultimately for the beautiful patterns that come when crystals form. And the patterns we see in atoms are really a consequence of deeper structure, deeper order, deeper symmetries at the subatomic level. Let's turn to the order in the heavens that we talked about earlier that so impressed early Christian writers and it has impressed people uh, from time immemorial. 
Now, much of that order in the heavens is obvious and was known to prehistoric people. More of it was discovered by ancient astronomers like, like Hipparchos or Ptolemy. But when modern scientists started studying the solar system more precisely and carefully, they uncovered even richer kinds of order, more beautiful patterns that were unsuspected by the ancients. So 400 years ago, Johannes Kepler, the great astronomer, one of the founders of modern science, discovered three beautiful laws of planetary motion that are called Kepler's laws. These, they're, they're beautiful uh, algebraic and geometrical patterns uh, obeyed by the planets in the solar system. Now, he was so impressed by the order that he found in the solar system that Kepler wrote in his treatise called The Harmonies of the World or The Harmonics of the World. I thank you, Lord God, our creator, that you've allowed me to see the beauty in your work of creation. In fact, this statement, this prayer, typifies the attitude of most of the great founders of, of, of the, most of the great figures of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. And indeed, the attitude of many, most of the great scientists uh, until well into the, into the 19th century. So they saw these great scientists of the scientific revolution, such as Kepler and Galileo indeed, uh, Newton, Boyle, Pascal, they saw their discoveries as revealing the hidden beauty in creation. Now, a little less than a century after Kepler, Isaac Newton showed that Kepler's three laws of planetary motion could be explained from a set of deeper laws, which we call Newton's laws of mechanics and gravity, which are a deeper and more impressive kind of order in nature. And about 200 years or so after Newton, a little over 200 years after Newton, Einstein showed that Newton's theory of gravity was actually a consequence of a yet deeper and more majestic theory of gravity, Einstein's theory of gravity or, or general relativity. And many leading theorists today, for very strong reasons, believe that Einstein's theory of gravity is really a consequence of a yet deeper theory, which is called superstring theory. Super, one of the top physicists in the world in speaking about the mathematical beauty and richness of superstring theory to a science reporter said, the science journalist said, I don't quote, I don't think I've succeeded in conveying to you its wonder, incredible consistency, remarkable elegance and beauty, unquote. Now, one of Kepler's, just to see how you, the order you see at the, on the surface of things, you can trace it down through the different levels of nature to the deeper and deeper levels. One of Kepler's three laws is that the orbits of the planets are ellipses with the sun at one of the focal points of fo foci of the ellipse. Ellipses are beautiful curves with a lot of elegant mathematical properties which were much studied by the ancient Greek mathematicians. The elliptical shape of planetary orbits um, was shown by Newton to be a consequence of the fact that the law of gravity is what's called an inverse square law. Now that we now know that the gravity has an inverse square law because of a certain property of the gravitational field 
which we call its masslessness because the gravitational field is massless. That's a technical term that accounts for the inverse square law. The masslessness of the gravitational field in turn is a consequence of deeper principles, symmetry principles at the level of Einstein's theory of gravity. So the order that Kepler saw on the surface had, had deep causes, which themselves were principles of order. Now, so you see as you, the, what's, the order on the surface can be traced down to deeper and deeper levels. And at the deeper levels, the order is actually much more impressive. So to, to, to give you some idea of this, you can, Kepler's laws, though mathematically beautiful, are actually based on very rather simple mathematics. You could explain Kepler's laws to a 12-year-old 12, 12 in about 15 minutes. A little algebra, a little geometry. But to understand Newton's laws of gravity and mechanics, which underlie Kepler's, you have to know calculus. In fact, Newton invented calculus in order to demonstrate the truth, the, the validity of his theories of, of, of gravity and mechanics. What lies below Newton's laws is Einstein's theory of gravity, which is based on much richer, deeper mathematics, on, the, on curved, non-Euclidean, four-dimensional space-time, and tensor analysis, and differential geometry, and so forth, which you usually learn in graduate school. The mathematical structure of superstring theory is so deep that even though some of the most brilliant minds, mathematical minds and physicists in, uh, uh, in the world, hundreds, thousands, in fact, have been studying superstring theory for over 40 years, they still haven't grasped, they still haven't gotten to the bottom of it and grasped its uh, mathematical structure. Now, what is true of the motions of the heavenly bodies is true also of the study of matter itself. As physicists, as physicists probed beneath the surface to find the ultimate constituents of matter and the forces by which they interact, they discovered laws that were of astonishing subtlety and, and beauty. They were based on mathematical principles and symmetries much stranger than those we encounter, that ever had ever been encountered, uh, uh, encountered before, much stranger than those we see in ordinary life. For example, Einstein's theory of special relativity is based upon a certain kind of rotational symmetry called Lorentz invariance. Now, normal rotational symmetries that we're, that we're familiar with involve things going around in circles. But the Lorentz rotations on which, which uh, play a crucial role in, in, in special relativity, Lorentz symmetry is based on rotations that go in space-time, not just in space, but in space-time, they go around in hyperbolas, in a sense, which we can't visualize. You cannot visualize those. You have to use mathematical techniques to study them. You can't picture them. The um, forces, there are four known forces of nature, electromagnetism, the strong force, the weak force, and the gravitational force. You could also count the Higgs force. The three non-gravitational forces, electromagnetism, strong force, and the weak force, are all based in a very profound way that would require knowing a lot of, 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 of very advanced physics to explain. They're all based in a profound way on certain kinds of symmetries that are called gauge symmetries. Now, 
those gauge symmetries involve rotations, not in ordinary three-dimensional space in which we live, but in certain abstract spaces that in whose coordinates are not even ordinary numbers, not real numbers. Their coordinates in these abstract spaces are complex numbers. Complex numbers, as you might recall, are ones that involve the square root of minus one. We also believe, or there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the three non-gravitational forces are actually fragments of an underlying force, which is called the grand unified force, which in a certain sense broke apart into three, into three separate forces. And the grand unified force is based on gauge symmetries that, um, excuse me, uh, is based on symmetries that involve rotations in at least 10 dimensions or five complex dimensions. So we see these are very much more sophisticated kinds of symmetries than we see on the surface of things. And one, one final example is that of what is, there's a very important, is believed, there's some evidence, it's not overwhelming, but there's evidence that a very important kind of symmetry is involved in fundamental physics called supersymmetry. It's also involved in superstring theory, for example. Supersymmetry is, involves numbers that are very strange, stranger even than complex numbers. With both real numbers and complex numbers, A times B equals B times A. But there are certain kinds of numbers involved in supersymmetry that are called Grassmann numbers that have the strange property that A times B equals minus B times A. Now, even if supersymmetry is not correct, we know that Grassmann numbers are involved in, uh, are, are required to describe uh, certain basic particles like electrons and quarks. So as I said, um, the deep structure of nature is based on profound and rich mathematical ideas, rich mathematical structure. By the way, I can't draw a picture of grand unified symmetries the way I could with a, uh, the hexagon or a sphere. I said, these are symmetries you can't really visualize, uh, but there are certain diagrams connected with them that one can draw. They, they don't really give you the full idea of what these grand unified symmetries are like, but here's some of the diagrams. So I wanna clarify one thing before I end. I've emphasized a particular kind in this talk, a particular kind of ordering principle in nature called symmetry. And it is indeed extremely important in, in contemporary physics, it's of central importance. But there are other kinds of ordering principles that are equally important in, 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 in fundamental physics. Uh, and these are dynamical principles that govern how things move and change with time such as the principles of quantum mechanics, for example. And those too are of great mathematical sophistication and subtlety. So to conclude, science does not explain away order seen in nature as coming from just mere chaos in some magical and spontaneous way. Physics and science in general explains order, but always does so by deriving it from or showing it to be the consequence of a deeper order in nature, an order that is usually more impressive. Now, as you come to the very deepest levels of nature and contemporary particle physics is coming very, very close to the, the deepest levels of nature. In fact, with superstring theory may have come to the deepest level. But as we've gone down towards the deepest levels, we find astonishing mathematical richness and, and sophisticated mathematical ideas lie at the heart 
of the physical world. Where does that order come from? Now, you can't explain it as coming from a yet deeper level of nature because I'm talking about the, the order at the deepest level of nature. So science, in a way, can't, can't explain the deepest order in nature. It can show that it's there, but that's all it can do. So the question then remains, the question that, for example, St. Gregory of Nazianzus said, uh, may, uh, asked in the late fourth century, let us even suppose that the existence of the world is spontaneous, to what will you ascribe its order? As I said, this question goes beyond the kinds of explanations that science can give. One could say that the astonishing order in nature is just a brute fact, just the way things are. Or one can say that the order comes from a giver of order, as Christians and other theists have all, always said, that the profound ideas upon which the physical world is based are ideas come from a profound mind, and that the fundamental laws come from a lawgiver. That is the ancient argument. And I would say it's stronger today than it has ever been before. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Barr. So we have quite a few questions coming in, some of them fairly sophisticated. Okay. Uh, so let's- I, uh, I'll, I'll take my slides down, is that okay? Yes, that'd be great, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So uh, Samuel Henley, is asking, how would someone apply this argument from order paradigm to the realm of quantum mechanics? Mm -hmm. If wave functions are complex value probability amplitudes, then is unorder or randomness the basis of our understanding of nature? Does God play dice with the universe? Okay, so to say there's order in nature doesn't mean that there aren't random things going on and that there, is not, there are not probabilistic laws. So the laws of quantum mechanics are probabilistic. So um, yeah, and, and in fact, in a liquid, the molecules are moving around in a fairly random way. There's certainly randomness in nature. In fact, the, when I talked about how, how the, the, the galaxies and stars and planets form, <clears throat> initially, as I said, it's believed that the universe was filled with a nearly featureless gas, but with little density perturbations, as we say, or fluctuations in them, which are the, the little lumps that eventually became galaxies, stars, and planets. It's believed that those little density fluctuations are a result of random quantum, they're random quantum mechanical fluctuations. So yes, there's randomness in nature, there's no question. Uh, but nature is not merely random. If there is, an, an, in, addition to in, the, in addition to certain things that happen randomly, there are also profound principles of order at work that allow some of those seemingly random th things to eventually form themselves into orderly structures. So yes, there's randomness, but it's not mere formlessness or mere randomness. There's also order and it, that order goes all the way down to the deepest levels. And that order was always there. At least most particle physicists believe that the fundamental laws of physics have always been in operation. So while you might say that the animals, the order seen in the biological world wasn't always there, it emerged you know, through evolution and so on, the fundamental order in nature was at, at the level of fundamental physics was always there. And that, that, and so you still need a giver of order. Mm. 
I would say. <laughs> or you can say as the atheist does, it's just a brute fact. It's just the order, it's just it's just the way it is. Well, Hector Munoz asks, oh well, he says, first thanks to you for your presentation, but asks, do you find many scientists sharing your perspective on order and created behind nature? Yes, in fact, I wish I'd put on my transparent. Even many people, scientists who are not religious are impressed by the order of nature. Um, and in fact, so for example, uh, as a professor at Harvard, I won't, who's an atheist, I won't use his name because I don't want to embarrass him and make it look like I'm exploiting an atheist for religious purposes. But there's a very famous scientist at Harvard who uh, is an atheist, but he was asked by a reporter he was asked by a reporter whether he was religious. He said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I, I am not religious. And then he went on to say, but I've always been impressed by the order in nature and by its lawfulness. He said, the laws of physics, as we, he's an astrophysicist, the laws of physics, as we know them, are obeyed all the way out to the farthest reaches of the universe that we can see. He said, they're obeyed much better than the laws that we humans make on earth are obeyed by people. And he said he's never, he, he, he's, he said he's in awe of that fact. Uh, but you can give other examples. Many scientists are impressed. Now the question is what conclusions do they draw from it? They, they, um, some of them might be willing, uh, even some atheists, people who say they're atheists uh, see why one might believe in a sort of God, the geometer, sort of like a pure mathematical intelligence kind of a God. Uh, Einstein might have had some sympathies for that, but what they have a hard time with is the idea of a personal God or a God who, you know, like the God of, 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 of Christianity. Uh, the, the, so I think, I, I think, and of course the cosmic order argument doesn't give you necessarily it doesn't tell you that God is love. It doesn't tell you that, it tells you very little. It tells you that God is a giver of order. <laughs> That's all it tells you. So we have uh, anonymous attendees asked, from the Catholic perspective, how is mathematics considered metaphysically? Is it discovered or invented? And why do these abstract ideas do such a good job at describing physical reality? Those are very profound questions on which the church has the church has no doctrine on that. There is no Catholic teaching on that. It's one of the most, uh, there's a whole area branch of, of philosophy called philosophy of mathematics. And there's a whole spectrum of different theories of philosophical accounts of mathematics. There's formalism, there's intuitionism, there's, um, and, and so forth. Um, um, and some math people would say mathematics is purely an invention, that they're arbitrary things that we cook up. Others would say that we are discovering mathematical truths that are always out there. So mathematical Platonists, for example, that's one of the schools, mathematical Platonism says, there is an objective mathematical reality out there, not out there in space, but outside our minds that we discover things in that reality. So a, and so, um, but that's a hotly contested and it's a very difficult question. Why, the question of why these mathematics whether it's invented or discovered, and there's a remarkable fact often commented on by mathematicians and physicists, which is that in many, many cases, and I can give you a whole lot of examples, mathematicians developed certain mathematical ideas that seem to have no relevance to the real world, to the physical world, or to science. And they developed these kinds of math these mathematical ideas 
purely because they were mathematically interesting and beautiful. And then often long afterwards, either years, decades, or even a century or more, it was discovered that this mathematics was needed to describe the physical world. I'll give you a few examples. I talked about symmetries and, and the branch of mathematics that studies symmetries is called group theory. So group theory was developed in all the beautiful kinds of symmetries that we've, group theory, especially the theory of what are called Lie groups was developed very far before anyone realized you needed those mathematical structures to describe the forces of nature. Um, complex numbers, the whole theory of complex variables was developed in the early 1800s by Cauchy and others. It's one of the most beautiful branches of mathematics. It was not discovered that complex numbers were needed to, needed to describe the physical world until quantum mechanics came around in the 1920s, so about 100 years later. But I want to give example after example. A, a very famous example is that in the 19th century, a great mathematician named William Rowan Hamilton discovered a certain mathematical structure, certain algebra that was called quaternions. And it actually became proverbial that quaternions was, was the example of useless mathematics totally useless, beautiful, but totally useless. It turned out a century later that you needed that structure or something isomorphic to it to describe the properties of electrons and, and also the properties of the weak force. So that, those beautiful math. So this is a mystery, things that we dream up out of our head. Now, either we're discovering them or we're inventing them, but they were dreamed up by the human mind because they were beautiful math. And then we, lo and behold, we find out that the universe made use of this beautiful math. And so, uh, and, 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 and this fact is a famous essay by the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Eugene Wigner, on, uh, called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in Describing the Physical World, or something close to that. I, I maybe I've said too much already on the answer to the question, but it's a great question. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Barr. So Patrick McGee, asks, why, in your opinion, do non-theistic physicists look for deeper symmetries in nature, like supersymmetry and granny unified theories? Is it an argument from induction? Previous and um, symmetry have proved scientifically fruitful? I suppose one could say, now we look for, so the early ones, I mean, uh, the early scientists were religious, so, and some of them did have religious motivations. Kepler, for example, uh, he saw, um, he had a very mystical, he was the one who discovered these laws of planetary motion. He had a sort of mystical sort of theological way of thinking about the solar system, symbolic. Um, the very idea of laws of physics actually arose in a way from Christian belief. So the idea of laws of physics, I believe, originated from it was, uh, uh, Descartes and, and Newton. Newton actually thought about the laws of nature as the laws of physics as laws imposed on matter by God. So, so some of these, so on the other hand, it goes way before Christian belief. So the, you know, the Pythagoreans of ancient Greece, I think, I think what happened is people discovered that there was beautiful, beautiful mathematical, there were beautiful mathematical patterns in nature, and then they looked for more of them. So the thing that impressed the Pythagoreans or Pythagoras was the discovery that musical notes that are in harmony with each other, uh, are come from string, uh, strings uh, of stringed instruments that are in certain uh, numerical proportions or ratios to each other. So they saw that there was mathematics underlay math, uh, musical beauty. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, 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 I mean, you, 
many people throughout history, religious or not, have seen that there is beautiful mathematics in nature. And of course, it's tantalizing and, and you want to get to the bottom of it. I mean, whether you're religious or not, you want to just to see, well, if there's this, if there's this order there, then, then what's the ultimate order? What was the ultimate pattern? Yeah, beauty has an appeal, whatever, whatever wherever you come from. So we have a question from uh, Michael Gunzik. Doesn't the increase in entropy ultimately undermine the order in the universe? Well, no, actually, but in a way that illustrates the point because the, what, what we're seeing is that the, there was order in a certain sense. So first of all, entropy does tend to increase on the whole as time goes on. So the earlier situations are situations of lower entropy, meaning more order. So actually, as you go back towards the beginning of the universe, the universe is more orderly. The entropy is very low. In fact, you can show that the entropy of the universe at the time of the Big Bang had to be extremely, astonishingly low. In other words, the universe in a certain way was extremely highly ordered near the beginning. So again, just as at the deepest levels of, of law, you find more order at the deeper levels. And then as it plays out, you, you'd get order, but the deeper order that was there from the beginning is, is greater. So too in the history of the universe, in a sense, the, there's a certain sense in which the order at the beginning was greater. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you do get, now, some people think that this, you know, in biological evolution, you have more orderly structures forming over time. And some people would say, well, doesn't that go against uh, the second law of thermodynamics? No, because you can get more order in one place, but always at the expense of more disorder somewhere else. So on the whole, the universe is growing more and more disorderly, though there are pockets of, of greater order. Okay. Uh, we only have time for a couple more questions. Uh, Cameron Wilcox asks, what would be your response to the multiple universe theory, this multiverse, being a possible explanation for the pre-existing order that leads to future order? If this could be a possible explanation of the cause of our universe's existence, we still have yet to explain where this set of universes and its order arose. So with the consideration of infinite universes, could this infinity in any way compare to the infinitude of God? Okay, so there's several questions there. So, and in a sense, you answer, uh, the question, questioner answered some of his own questions. But I'll say this. So first of all, the multiverse idea comes in many forms. Um, most of the uh, versions of the multiverse idea that were physicists would study uh, are not based on there being multiple universes that have nothing to do with each other and have completely different laws and they have no relationship to each other. Most multiverse scenarios are based on the idea that there's actually a single universe, uh, but that that single universe has a sort of a multiplicity to it in its different regions of the universe. It looks like uh, conditions can be very different in different parts of the universe, so different that at first glance, it, it may look like they have different laws. So you might find in a very remote part of our universe beyond what telescopes can see, you might find that there are different particles. You don't have electrons and protons or quarks and so on. You have different particles and, and not electromagnetism, strong and weak force, but maybe different forces. But most people in my field, most particle physicists believe or that deep down, there's a set of fundamental laws that govern the whole universe, whether it's a multiverse or not. Um, so that's one thing. Now, you could toy with the idea, and more philosophers do this than physicists. Suppose you just had an infinite number of universes or a very large number that had nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Each had its own set of fundamental laws. And so somehow all possible, or some of them might not have any laws. Some of them might be just totally haphazard. 
Um, and so all possibilities are tried out, or so many are tried out that there's going to be one universe out of the zillions that happens to have laws of the, of the that we observe that are make it possible to have this nice orderly universe with life in it and so forth. Um, but that raises the question that the questioner asked: uh, How do you account? Actually, that sort of that sort of exacerbates the problem because now you need not just a giver of order for one universe; you have to explain why there are all the different universes and that they have these laws and not other laws, unless you say all possible things exist, which leads to other problems. But you, then you have to explain, you have to explain not just one universe, you have to explain the order and the different order in different universes. I don't think that really satisfactorily uh, accounts for anything. Yeah. Well, so we have time for one more question and several people have asked this, uh, including Rafael Acuna and Clayton Carlson. But can you discuss how fundamental order in the universe points towards teleology? Does it point toward an ultimate end? Um, I think you don't, you say, now the way, I think you can see teleology in nature. I think it's um, a little easier to see in physics perhaps than in biology. The trouble with seeing in biology because of evolution is this. You might've seen in the old days, you might've said, well, you know, isn't it great that somebody, um, that uh, put trees there for monkeys to climb. You know, the trees exist so monkeys can climb them. Well, now we know that actually the trees were there first and monkeys evolved to take advantage, uh, to, to ad adapt themselves to that and, and so develop the ability to climb. So, uh, but, but in physics, you actually see, and this is gets the subject which I won't have time to talk about, anthropic coincidences. So it is now, it was, this idea was resisted for a long time, but it's now generally accepted by most physicists that there are many features of the fundamental laws of nature as we know them that are peculiarly conducive to having life in the universe. Um, if, you, if, if the certain particles, if their masses were slightly different or certain parameters, certain quantities, for example, the vacuum expectation value of the Higgs field, if it was slightly different, the universe would have unfolded in a radically different way that would have made it almost unthinkable that life could appear. Uh, so there are many features and they're called anthropic, it's a misnomer, it's, uh, it's just features of the laws of physics that are somehow just what you would need to make it possible to have living things. And you can see teleology in that way. There you have the whole discussion because you could try to explain that using multiverse idea. Uh, but, I, but, I, but, but the short answer is yes, I think you can make teleological arguments based on not just that the universe is lawful because there are many kinds of laws you can imagine the universe having. There's an infinite number of mathematical laws that a universe could have as its fundamental laws. It's hard to quantify this, but I think if you pick one at random, it would lead to a universe that was barren, not able to have life. The laws have to be special. I think you can make this argument very strongly. The laws of physics have to be special in one way or another if they're to give you a universe sufficiently rich in possibilities to allow uh, life such as ourselves to arise. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, we had do dozens of questions and we can only get to so many of them. Uh, but I want to thank, thank you again for giving us this talk. Thank you.